startups fail. So, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, what can we do to, to address our pain of the fact that, you know, starting a business from scratch is actually punishment for not understanding statistics very well, right? So my solution to that problem, and just in my own life, has been to uh, buy existing companies and then build them from there. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast. This is episode 122, and today's guest name is Walker Dybel, and Walker has an amazing track record, and he's got a philosophy that I think is absolutely genius. So before we get into what we're going to be talking about today, a little bit of background on Walker is he has pretty much coined the term acquisition entrepreneur. He co-founded three startups and acquired seven companies, and then right now he's the managing director of Centrua, which is currently he manages and owns three companies. And Walker just released his best-selling book, Build and Buy, How Acquisition Entrepreneurs Outsmart the Startup Game. Just got named by Forbes as one of the must-read books of the year. And he and I dive into a really interesting topic that I think is extremely important for you, whether you're going to be buying companies or selling companies. This is how the game is played. And Walker's theory is that to go acquire a company that has cash flow, has customers, you can do so many different things with it because you're building value on top of something that's already existing. But I think what is a big takeaway for you while you're going into this episode is if you're thinking about hitting a certain valuation in your company, organic growth might not be able to get you there. And if you can do strategic things through purchasing companies that have product and customers in different competing or or correlating and strategic areas that can fit on top of your current business, it'll accelerate you to be able to get to the cash flow and to the valuation that you potentially want before you exit. So whether in the near term you're gonna be buying a company or selling your company, this is an important episode because it really dives in and gives you a little bit more exposure on how value is perceived. And it should give you some good ideas that if you've got a couple years and you've got some cash flow in your current business to bolt on additional businesses could accelerate you to your growth and to your eventual exit so you can hit the valuations that you want and need. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with Walker. He's got a ton of good insights and a lot of gold nuggets as far as how to build value once you buy another company. So if you're the buyer, you're going to one that wants to increase value so that way you can hit your targets, but it's also what some potential buyer is going to eventually want from your company when you eventually exit. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Walker's got a bunch of gold nuggets and a bunch of really good strategic ways to be thinking about value in a company, whether you're buying or selling it. So without further ado, here's my episode with Walker. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Walker, how you doing? I'm so great, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I, uh, we were kind of rallying back and forth in some other topics, but you know, we've got a lot to talk about today because I think there's a lot of common interests we have. You've got some crazy experience and I'm personally just super pumped to dive into a bunch of it. So for the listeners that aren't too familiar with you or your book yet, or, you know, some of your past, Walker, maybe just take us back to, you know, how did you, what are some of the big milestones that got you where you are today? Um, and like, how did you surround yourself with all this world of the being an entrepreneur? 
Okay, so let me start with, you know, maybe let's keep the end in mind a little bit. I, you know, a lot of people for the last, you know, let's say decade have often called me an entrepreneur or a serial entrepreneur, but I never called myself that, right? And the reason why is because every time I started a business from scratch, uh, I never was able to exceed that, you know, million dollar in revenue mark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is this is where, you know, the, the startups I'm involved in where I'm the co-founder, right? So... Um, the way that I found luck along the way was kind of by buying businesses that were already there and then kind of, you know, innovating them with my skill set, right? And taking them to the next level or, or whatever. And I guess in one instance or not, right? I mean, even just keeping it as it is and, and, and as a holding if it, as you were. So, mm-hmm. you know, what got me to this, you know, what what I started calling acquisition entrepreneurship, which I, I, I think that term sort of popped up a couple of places at the same time, but I didn't know it. So, you know, as far as I knew, I, I coined the term, right? But so from, you know, where I was to becoming a, a, an acquisition entrepreneur, the milestones along the way kind of went like this. I had a startup uh, with another guy, two other guys really in, um, business school. So I got my MBA at at WashU in St. Louis and we had, um, a technology, um, we we had licensed a technology for point of purchase advertising. Hmm. And this technology was, it was 2003 and the technology today is known as real 3d. Like when you go to the movie theater and you put on the clear 3d glasses, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that didn't exist. Like in 2003, 3D was like the red and blue stuff, right? <laughs> totally. Right. So, so um, and whether that same actual, you know, technology became real 3D, I actually don't know. But the point is, is we had this in 2003 for point of purchase advertising. And um, we were deep in conversations with Walmart. They wanted to roll it out to a number of stores, if not every store. We were deep in conversations, raising capital. Um, we didn't need that much, like a million to a million and a half we were trying to get. And uh, we were uh, finalists in, you know, probably, you know, one of the, the, the biggest, you know, business plan startup competitions in the regional Midwest anyway. Which one was that? Uh, well, it's the Olin Cup out of okay. the Scandalaris Center. But so basically, um, you know, we, we, we were deep in this. And it was one of these things where I was doing it while I was an MBA student. And um, the month of graduation, it all came unraveled. And basically the, the licensing fell apart and we didn't have what we thought we had and it was retracted. And what they didn't say was, hey, we're gonna go make Avatar with James Cameron, right? But that's, that's <laughs> what happened. And we didn't know that. Too, right? <laughs> so here it was, you know, this sort of like really innovative idea, like getting product market fit, like more stressing out about how we're actually gonna execute the product. And then mm-hmm. it all kind of fell apart, right? So this was my first like startup experience. As you know, a lot of famous entrepreneurs say, hey, it's all about at-bats, right? So I'm like, hey, no problem. Startups fail. We all know it. Just put that failure feather in my cap and move on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that before. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So it's one of these things where I, I knew that I could, that there was a way to buy a small business. And when I went out into the market in 2004 to try to figure out how to do it, I was, you know, in my late 20s, I really had no money of consequence. Uh, you know, and what I was met with was a truly opaque market that was fragmented and just had this huge range of, let's just say, talent and quality in terms of brokers, right? And 
today I know that, you know, a, a business broker, an advisor, an investment banker, they're all the same thing, you know, and it, and it just depends on how it's actually being executed. Back then I didn't know the difference, right? Oh, and um, by the way, there's a lot of people that don't know the difference of what people are doing and executing on. <laughs> right, 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 right. So it's one of these things where, where it was in 2004, where I was looking for the book that I didn't have. I'm looking for that high quality resource to help me navigate this landscape. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up failing trying to buy a business and kind of went corporate for a while. But um, I released the book, uh, Buy Then Build, How Acquisition Entrepreneurs Outsmart the Startup Game, like what, last month. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long journey, but uh, that's, that's, that's and where no, and that's awesome. And that's what, and that's journey is what we're here to unpack because, you know, how, like, you know, obviously in the, in the 14 years before you ended up launching it, you know, what, what you learned in order to actually, um, to put it all together. And, you know, I, I think it, it is a challenge. I'm just curious, Walker, cause like yeah. so many people, and I, I think I saw that you're an EO and there's a lot of EO listeners or Vistage listeners. And I think there's a lot of people that struggle with that, you know, that million dollar mark, if they, you know, if you think about this, like the probabilities of starting, what is it like, how many of the 80% are out of business in year five? And then how many get above a million? It's just like, why? It's like, why would you ever try? <laughs> but then, well, and, and Ryan, the thing is, is with those numbers, like if you talk to real entrepreneurs out there doing it, they don't believe those numbers. Those, right. are, those, are, those are like the US Department of Forgive me, I forgot. But you know, you know, like, you know. But basically, all that means is that there's like a legal entity that's open and sitting there, right? Right. right. It down. So I'm starting to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no. I think it's. I think you're right too, because like, yeah. And it's funny because I some of the stats that I usually throw out is there's 27 million companies in America, but 10 million of them are incorporated LLCs from Legal Zoom from someone that charged two thousand dollars for a picture, right? <laughs> something. Right. Well, look, think of it like this. All like like. If there is a better way to start from scratch, the best way that we've ever come up with is venture capital, right? So mm -hmm. in other words, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going to go get VC money. And, you know, on average, I'm, you know, I get it. So now on average, I'm going to get somewhere between, you know, 60 and 70 million in cash, right? Mm -hmm. There's a 75% chance that my startup is going to go completely to zero. Right. Process that. And that's the best way, right? Venture capital is a business model for venture capitalists. Totally, totally. Not even for the investors because the venture capitalists have the lowest amount of risk in that situation ever. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And you know, what, what do they say? They're, they're sort of back of the hand is, you know, one's, one is gonna really make it, you know, whatever, 10X yeah. or whatever. Two or three of them are gonna break even and the rest, you know, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So Walker, like, what, what, I'm curious. So what, you know, if we kind of go, what, what is that? the biggest challenge? Why is it so much harder to start than to buy? And like, in, what are some of the fundamental things that you see as constraints for these entrepreneurs that are like, that are hitting that million dollars or whatever it is? I mean, what is it capital? Is it resources? What, what are some of the big things that they have issues with that you see? Well, I mean, the, the research will tell you things like product market fit, not enough capital, you know, whatever. The thing is, is, you know, not enough capital is, is the reason. In, in other words, if you had enough money to do whatever you wanted for as long as you needed in order to pivot no matter how many times you needed to in order to establish an infrastructure that then could provide profitable revenue, then we'd all get there eventually, right? right. So, you know, for me, it's that product market fit. And I think that, um, you know, trying to create a market from scratch is incredibly difficult. 
uh, let me tell you a story. So, you know, as a co-founder in a, um, a, um, an enterprise SaaS business that, you know, was basically a mobile application, you know, for the enterprise. And we had recruited the consulting division head of, of really of the product we were trying to upset from Microsoft to be our CEO. We went through one of the top 10 accelerator programs in the world. We were oversubscribed. Our dev team was, was currently building uh, mobile software for special ops teams for the US government. We, br- we brought in a CTO of a Fortune 500 company to work with our dev team one-on-one and had them on board as an equity advisor. Uh, we, we had an all-star team and were fully funded, right? Nine months later, we were completely out of cash, even though we had beta programs running at you know half a dozen big brand names that you would know, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing was, was that, you know, the Achilles heel of our entire model, in my mind, and in retrospect, and if any of those people are listening, I might be wrong, but you know, my take on it is we would show it to the users and they would jump up and down and freak out. And they're like, how do I get this? And the problem was because it was at the enterprise level, we had to, we had to put it, we had to install it at the enterprise level. If we just gave it to, to a personal user on their iPad, for example, the, the, the company's um, SharePoint system would, would perceive it to be a virus and it would, it would shut down and lock out everyone nationwide. <laughs> <laughs> it would happen every time, but it did happen like, you know, two or three times out of 10, right? And so we couldn't just open it up on the app store and start helping people, you know, solve the, their, their individual problems. Instead, we were taking this really lightweight, you know, thing and, and basically trying to sell it to COOs of major organizations oh and per user per month fee, right? Now, if you're a COO of a major corporation, you've got two or three things you're trying to get done and, you know, trying to make, you know, your team incrementally more, more happy with like a lightweight, cheap thing is not something that's going to move the needle for your career. So I think at the end of the day, we needed to, we needed to figure out how to get around our model and reach the individual users because that would have worked. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of money. Well, and it's so crazy because like, totally get that. I couldn't even imagine. I mean, selling enterprise stuff to people that there's 17 layers of buyers, it just sounds mm-hmm. like a horrible situation. Right. That's right. And that's no. where the trends are right now. That's the adolescent trend right now, right? Yeah. You know, enterprise level SaaS. So then, which makes it, it makes a ton of sense to me. And I, I, so then I've, what I've noticed to Walker, so you have like, I've kind of got the, like the two different buckets and actually you and I were talking about John Warlow and I'll, I'll maybe steal or relay the, uh, his kind of philosophy in these psychographics where there's the, he calls them, um, craftsmen. I don't know if you've heard this and I don't think he's got any of the, uh, his books or his material, but there's craftsmen or essentially solopreneurs, right? They've got, they just pay for their, their income through their craft. And then there's a lot of those people. That's kind of like the 10 million people that we were talking about. And then you've got uh, mountain climbers, which are VCs and they're just, they're serial entrepreneurs. And then there's the freedom fighters and the freedom fighters are mid-market companies. And what he, what he actually noted with these people is that their level of funding is actually different. All these, so uh, uh, freedom fighters, are usually single or you know partnership owned. Yep. Long holds, you know, family, that kind of like the the EO visages, the kind of the audience here. And then there's the the mountain climbers, which are VC backed, you know, exit strategies, SaaS, tech, that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. um, what I find is interesting, kind of taking your scenario where you were intentionally doing this stuff. I I don't know if you've found this and this can kind of uh, dovetail into even parts of your book and your um, your kind of mission statement, but it's like 
do you see like that freedom fighter graphic or that bucket as people that kind of accidentally became entrepreneurs for the most part? So I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ryan. What's your question? <laughs> well, that's kind of my question is like, is like, okay, okay. That's a good so, I, guess, I, guess, I guess what I'm thinking of is the e-myth. Like I'm familiar with what you're right. talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like along the e-myth line of like, yeah. where, where like I find a lot of these people where like, so it's not the, okay, here, I'll, I'll put you back it off your story is that, sure. you know, there's someone that had a job at corporate America and then one of their customers said, oh. if you did this, you oh. did this, I'll buy that stuff from you. And then immediately you've got a million dollar company or like, you know, someone was in the right place, knew the right manufacturer, got that IP and like blew it up on Amazon or so. It was like almost yeah. like, does that make sense? Totally, totally. I guess this is what I would say. Let me compare it to this. Like it's one of these things where, you know, if I meet another person who is an entrepreneur that's starting their business and I say like, oh, that's great. What, you know, what's your product? Oh, we're an SEO firm. I just want to pull my hair out. It's like, it's like, yes, online marketing is booming. Yes, there's an ongoing demand for it. But it's like there's already, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 of those companies like in St. Louis alone. I'm sure I'm exaggerating. But I the, think it's more than that. Yeah, right. But the, the point is, is there's so many of them that it's a perfect acquisition entrepreneur sort of, you know, story. Like I feel like a roll-up could be, could occur at any, you know, sort of local level or even regional level, depending on, you know, how they're getting customers. So it's one of these things that on the surface, even like, you know, five years ago, you know, starting an SEO company sounded really sexy. It sounded like, wow, they're, they really, they, you know, they know what they're doing. This is cool. But, the, but they were popping up all over the place. And it was like, well, uh, you know, you don't need to do that. You can actually go buy an SEO firm for pretty low multiple and just kind of get going right away because of all the people that start them and then get burned out or get stuck yeah. or whatever it is. To your point, right? It's yeah. like, I know SEO. I get one customer. Next thing you know, I get two more, I lose one, I get two more, you know, at the end of the year, I've got 12 customers and I'm running right. business, right? Right, right. Yeah. So then let's, let's, why don't you give the, the listeners your definition of acquisition entrepreneur, how you got it kind of got to that and some of the big, you know, like characteristics of that philosophy. Sure. So, you know, at, at the, at the fundamental level is simply this, um, you know, startups fail. So, you know, as entrepreneurs, um, you know, what can we do to, to address our pain of the fact that, you know, starting a business from scratch is actually punishment for not understanding statistics very well, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my solution to that problem, and just in my own life, has been to uh, buy existing companies and then build them from there, right? So in other words, all we're trying to build, the fundamental thing that all entrepreneurs are trying to build is a new infrastructure that can generate revenue that the gross margin supports that infrastructure. In other words, I want an infrastructure that can produce profitable revenue, right? That's mm -hmm. it. That's all we're trying to build. Because the minute you can stop, you stop focusing on cash flow and you start focusing on how many people you can help, that's the moment of success for an entrepreneur, right? right. So by, by buying an existing company, you can you know, acquire a firm that already has product market fit, it already has cash flow, and then you can build it from there. And that can look so many different ways, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it just depends on, on your skill set and the opportunity at hand. Let me give you one example. As our software startup was kind of falling apart and running out of cash quickly, a broker who I had worked with to help me, um, well, ironically enough, the first company I sold, I sold it to an acquisition target. And, mm -hmm. uh, my, I, you know, I don't want to say that my, my, my vision for the company was was 
you know, so intriguing that he decided he wanted to buy our company, but you know, uh, that's what happened. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I called the broker that helped with that trend or he called me, the broker called me and he said, Hey Walker, how's that startup? And I said, Oh, Gary, it's Rocky. He said, good. There's a perfect business. You've got to see it. It's a great fit for you. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what's going on? So anyway, we, I looked at this company. Um, it had a printing component to it, which kind of made the hair on the back of my neck crawl. You and I were both in the printing industry. We know how cutthroat that can be. Um, but the sort of son of the, you know, founder had, you know, eliminated all of the printing equipment and sort of turned it into this, you know, sourcing and fulfillment center. Right. And he had this kind of like DOS era system that was spread out across all these customers. And, um, it, you know, it, it, conceptually, it was, it was great. It was just very dated and kind of needed to be upgraded and user-friendly. It was not user-friendly at all. I ended up buying the company. I ended up using the cash flow of the company to build out a proprietary e-commerce system that we then rolled out to all the existing customers. And within nine months, we had almost 20,000 users on our new software system. Holy cow. Which was exactly what we were trying to do at the startup and couldn't get done. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the economics and you start thinking, wow, it's more affordable. It's more accessible. All these baby boomers are retiring on and on and on. And, the, you know, by then build stories started to come together for me. Which it, it's, I literally, so I'm in a co-working space right now because um, mm -hmm. I, I floated around the Twin Cities and I just, I mean, you have no idea how many people like, oh yeah, I think we're, we've started this fund. And I'm like, yeah, you got like 50 grand and you're like, we're going to buy companies. I'm like, sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but it, the, 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 I think the, the seriousness is like, there's a lot of people talking about it these days because, and I, and I, th I don't know if you've found those numbers, but there's about four and a half million companies out of the mid market that are going to be transitioning over the next five or seven years. So it's like a huge number of these people. And so what, maybe what we can do Walker, cause I want to, I want to kind of split your, you know, for the listeners who are on either sides of these. And I, I would actually argue that the listeners should be on both sides mm -hmm. that you're going to have people that are potentially getting ready to exit. And so I think that there's a, a you know, for the, this, what your knowledge base and your experience is like, what are the things that you're doing as a buyer? What are you looking for that they can potentially help themselves? But then also on the flip side, so you know what you know what should they be aware of, and what are your you know big red flags? Why you would do a lower multiple, and all those different things that you're doing that they're not. And if someone's got a little bit more runway and wants to, instead of potentially you know instead of acquiring someone, do it to your own business, right? Because they might be able to maximize the value of their business. But then also on the flip side is. Some of these companies, I think for them to get to the multiple and the valuation that they need, they need to go out and acquire companies before they sell it. So I think it's, ah, uh, mm -hmm. that makes sense? Oh yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, so you can, we can take it any direction you want, but I think no matter who's listening, they'll, be, they'll benefit from it because I think whether you're buy on or the buy or the sell side, this is so important to you and how you're viewing these companies. Yep. So, okay, based on your question, I've got like three answers in completely different directions. But let, let's just start with, I need to unpack what you said a little bit because yeah. you know, I do help online entrepreneurs exit their business. And as I talk to them, you know, I kind of help them with, you know, here are the things that are going to drive value in your company. On the acquisition entrepreneur side, and when I'm buying, you know, I think that you can look at an opportunity any number of ways and you simply need to categorize it, right? So let's start there. Um, it's, it's something that I call the acquisition entrepreneur matrix or the AE matrix, right? And basically there's four different types of business profiles that allow a buyer to build value. 
the first is going to be you know eternally profitable. This is the the sort of you know HBR uh, profile that that came out of uh, well Harvard, and mm-hmm. um, they wrote the the book on how to buy a small business based on this eternally profitable kind of model. Number two is the turnaround. Number three is high growth, and number four is a platform business. Okay, mm-hmm. the eternally profitable business is one of these where the the goal of the acquisition is to reduce risk. It's like, I've never bought a business before. I don't know what I'm doing. I should probably shouldn't say it like that, but you know, it's sort of like, it's, it's <laughs> sort of like, I'm just looking for that thing that's going to have like zero technological threats moving into the space. You know, I always think of, um, you know, like snow plowing or corporate window washing or, you know, something like this, something where like, you know, you just look at it and you're, and you say, I have no idea how that would actually, you know, you know, there's no player. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like, right. So you buy that kind of a business and, and you just sort of work that eternally profitable kind of model, hoping to get, you know, hoping that your business is, is growing at one or 2% rather than declining one or 2%. But if it declines, don't worry about it. Cause it's going to come back up and just kind of float around neutral. Right. Mm-hmm. So no big growth opportunities, but you can really hang your hat on this. Right. Mm-hmm. Next is the turnaround. This is going to be, um, you know, there's varying levels of this, everything from like, you know, yeah, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to bail them out on the debt, you know, on the front steps of the courthouse and, and take over this business to just kind of trending down and like, will be in trouble soon. Right. I mean, these are the kinds of things that, you know, you pick them up for low multiples or, or even the debt on the books and, and, um, have an opportunity to turn the company around, usually benefiting from the infrastructure and revenue that's already there and just kind of right sizing the business. Right. Mm-hmm. On the other side, you've got high growth. You know, what I always think of in this situation, you know, I always think about these really high growth software as a service companies, right? Things that, you know, they're catching on real quick. They're multiplying fast. There's not a lot of operating expenses. And so it's growing, let's just say 30% or more year over year over year, right? It's going to carry a higher multiple, but as long as you can keep that growth going, it's actually a low multiple. Right. I mean, right. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of the, the catch 22 as a seller, which is, well, when do I actually sell? Cause I'm going to make more money if I hold on to it. Right. Lastly is this kind of platform model. What this is in my mind is, you know, if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you've got an idea, you have a skill set already intact. And when, when every single business that you look at that's for sale or not, the, the addition after you buy it, that makes a difference is you. And so by applying your skill set, your drive, your ideas to a business that could be acquired and then either, you know, turned on to a new trend or taken to the next level, however, whatever that looks like, to me, that's the platform model. And it sort of, it provides both uh, maximum value and maximum growth. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, I look for when I'm looking for a business. I either look at my skill set because I'm going to buy it and manage it myself mm-hmm. or if I'm, if I'm scaling acquisition entrepreneurship, I will look at, okay, here's my manager. What type of business will fit them? Yep. Yep. And then also probably in line with all that stuff, I'm assuming you're looking at the different cross pollination of services and products and all that kind of stuff. Cause you could probably cross, you know, you could have a platform business, but then you're taking maybe a, you know, one of those lifestyle businesses and applying it to some of the other stuff. And the whole, the whole machine gets a bigger growth rate or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about is, you know, synergies, right. Or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, strategic acquisitions, I guess. 
Yep. Um, so it's one of these things where we, you know, let's, let's jump back. Let's go back to the printing company. I know we were both in that space. So, you know, the, what the company had done before I got there was try to hire sales reps with existing books of business, right? That they could then, you know, sort of bring over. You're talking about a mature industry, you know, mm-hmm. again, but in, in the nineties, one of these eternally profitable types of companies, right? So maybe not by the late nineties, but anyway, so, um, the, the trick with that is it never worked, right? Like, like the, the, com- the customers of that sales rep never came over. And oh, I tried it, yeah, I tried it a few times as well and, and like four times and it just never worked. And then I was like, well, what is this? And I started looking at the data and, you know, I don't have that on hand, but basically, you know, some large amount of customers, call it 80%, feel like their sales rep don't understand their business at all, nor do they really truly understand the value that the company is providing. So the operations of the business are what that customer is ultimately buying. And that sales rep, you know, sure, they've got the relationship, but like, they're not the, they're not the, the provider of the value, right? Mm-hmm. It, but, you know, if a sales rep leaves, um, that company is at risk of losing, you know, on the high end, call it 10% of, you know, that, that sales rep's customer base. So yet again, it occurred to me in the printing industry that it was like, wait a minute, if we acquire a printing business, and retain all the salespeople, you actually get effectively 100% of that, of that business. And that is actually the best way to grow. And if you start to break down the economics of how acquisitions work, it's actually cheaper than hiring a sales rep anyway, or it can be, right? Right. So, and oh, oh God, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I had so many, I got so many sales rep stories. I don't even know how to start. And so in print sales, podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah, different podcasts on why you don't want to be a sales manager. Um, right. um, I want to buy the company that then manages those salespeople. Right. right <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. Well, and let's take, let's take the, 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 what the, the train of thought that we were kind of going on, on, buying companies to get your eventual exit. Cause I, and then we, we can, t- we can uh, t- tee off the interview with mm-hmm. things. If you're going to be selling things, you should be really concerned about or looking at because you're going to be a target at some point and why you don't, you know, but like, as far as the buy side, I think, you know, Walker, there's so many of our clients and these and, and people that I talk to where when they, there are a lot of those people that are pretty much in that bucket of internally profitable. But what, what I see is that, so if you think about the, the numbers, let's say you're a $2 million company, you're making 10% EBITDA, 200 grand. You know, there's not a lot of wiggle room or cash flow after the salaries and all that. So it's, a, it's literally a lifestyle business where they're probably working a lot into the whole John Warlow built to sell kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they run these numbers, and I've done a couple other interviews about how to back into what your, like essentially your passive cash flow needs to be. They're so significantly off Walker that it's like they can't sell because if they sold after taxes, after this, they're going to walk away with four or 500 grand mm-hmm. and have two or three years of income. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. So, but if I were to chug away, kind of like you were saying, doing certain things, I, can't, I mean, I'm still not going to hit my goal with the 3% growth or 10% growth that I'm doing right now because my, I would need to do so many things to get to my, you know, three to 5 million net that I need. So what are some, when you think about these people, how, like, how should you be, how should they be looking at potential acquisitions to bolt onto what they're doing? Yes. Um, I guess what I would say there is growing through acquisition is a fantastic reality for those that have found it. Basically, you know, I mean, first you've got to start with the downside. Okay. I mean, something like, um, and I'm reaching back into, you know, my MBA days, but it's something like almost 50% of, 
you know, acquisitions fail to materialize the value they thought they were acquiring. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, you know, and, and as someone who has made strategic acquisitions and bolted on, you can't, you can't ignore the complexity of merging two companies together, no matter, no matter how insignificant it appears to be. Okay. Um, it's, 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 it's a project. So, you know, when I, when I look at companies that are like, oh yeah, you know, we've got, you know, we just fund, we just got a bunch of funding or whatever the reason is, and we're going to run out and, you know, here's our quota. We're going to buy a company a month, you know, for the rest of the year. To me, that just is insane. Like maybe they can do it. And I I obviously hope they can, but it's one of these things where to me, it's, it's a one at a time kind of thing. Like you've got to be able to merge them correctly. Obviously the thing, you know, look, part of the reason why, so I help online entrepreneurs in the lower middle market exit their companies. Okay. And part of the reason I do that, there's a couple of reasons. One, there's not a lot of people in online businesses, like the EBITDA you just said, you know, based on that, on that high revenue number, you can get that kind of EBITDA at a significantly lower revenue number in the online world, which I it's love. Cre- it's wild actually. It's wild. Right. Number two, um, in the areas where I work, I don't get a whole lot of like corporate acquisitions. And we do, we get private equity and, and things like this. But, but the thing is, is that even when that happens in this space, there's no heads rolling, you know, there's no like, oh yeah, we're going to buy this company and clean out the, the, the operating expenses by firing these 20 people. Like I don't have to deal with that, which is beautiful. It makes, it makes my life so wonderful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously those are the types of things <laughs> that can really, you know, uh, uh, maximize the, the acquisition. You know, I guess it's, it's, you know, if you look at operating efficiencies, if you look at, at the end of the day, I guess that's it. Um, I, I bought a company once where I walked in and I met the seller and within, you know, one second, I knew that I absolutely was not going to buy this company. Um, it was one of these where I met the guy and I'm like, this is not going to work, you know, whatever. But I, you know, driven a while to get there. And so I couldn't say like, oh, I forgot. I've got this call with Brian. I got to go, you know, so <laughs> I'm, I'm like there and I'm, and I'm looking and I'm talking to the seller and I'm sitting there with the package in front of me. And then I, all of a sudden, I, these two things kind of went together and the seller was talking and I'm looking at the P&L, you know, the income statement. And then I start asking questions about the income statement back to the, the, the seller. And I start to realize in my head, the seller is the problem with the business, right? Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even have considered this as a turnaround. It's just that all of a sudden I realized that there was so much operational inefficiency going on that simply by getting in there and operating it properly, it was going to make it significantly more profitable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When a company is going out looking for another company to acquire, they either need to look at, okay, do we want to accelerate what we're already doing or do we want to kind of catch a different trend over here in our industry and try to catch the, the upside of that bell curve while it's still small? Well, and then, you know, to, to piggyback off of one of your other comments too, is like, is you know, what you did with the printing business is like, can you go buy a customer base? And so you like, let's say it's making 5% or whatever, and maybe it is running fairly efficient and, and, but is there something else that you could bolt on top of that would, that would, double the growth, right? I mean, it just, yeah, let me, let me give it to you like this. So, so yeah. the first company I bought was a book printing company. Okay. And, um, I, the week I bought it, the Amazon Kindle came out now, <laughs> right. now listen, it's, it's, it's not like I didn't see it coming. You know, I mean, there was yeah. a lot happening at that time, but actually what I saw was that people were starting to buy books online 
And sure enough, when you looked at the, at the empirical evidence supporting the trends in the industry, yes, Amazon was making a lot of headlines, but they like, first of all, number one, the, the, the print book printing business was still over like a hundred billion in revenue. Like, you know, I mean, it was huge. Mm -hmm. And obviously the trends were moving a different way with this new technology, uh, eBooks, right? But people were ordering books online and then they were being printed at low runs and, 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 you know, keeping inventory down or even print on demand for, for like JIT, just in time shipment, even single copy, right? Look, we all know that exists today, but like, you know, that, that, that wasn't so clear, right? Um, mm-hmm. Whatever that was, let's say 15 years ago, 12 years ago. So um, it's one of these things where I bought the company, I knocked a wall down over in pre-press, um, I put in you know, three digital printing presses, uh, and then went and same thing, I turned around and told all the existing customers, hey, we've got this new thing we're rolling out, you know, it's gonna be JIT, keep your inventory low, da da da. And, mm-hmm. you know, within 18 months, it was over 20% of the business, right? Wow. And it's one of these where, you know, the print industry is extremely fragmented. We were not on the map. And we went into a rough time where a lot of printing companies were going out of business, like a lot of them, right? We were, I'll just say, flat during the Great Recession. And the banker actually, the, my banker at the time looked at me and said, hey, flat's the new growth model. And he just, <laughs> it, it was true. If you remember those times, right? So, so it was, you were just happy you weren't folding. Right, exactly. Like I was like his crown jewel of that time. But it was, it was one of these where every other owner of a printing company, with all due respect to them, it was a bunch of, you know, gray haired, you know, mm-hmm. fat cat guys with deep pockets complaining about how it wasn't the 1990s anymore. Everyone in my age group or our age group was running from it. They're like, no way. That's like, if you want to be sexy, you go on the other side of print. This is not where you want to be. But the truth is, is it was the best time since Gutenberg to try to make something of the company. And after about 24 months of implementing that, we were one of the largest 1.5% of printing companies in North America. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, this little thing. Now I got to a point where, I, I looked at, okay, now I need to take it to the next level. I'm going to build this system where people can get instant quotes online. And then, you know, these custom quotes for their custom projects. And then there's going to be a little green button in their email and they just upload their files and then we rip it and then they approve the proof. And then it, and then if it's color and black and white, it goes on to the different presses automatically. And, and I priced this thing out. It was like, it was a seven figure build out, right? I mean, it was oh my crazy. God. Yeah. So, so I knew I could buy a book printing company cheaper than that, right? So mm-hmm. I went out on a two and a half year search looking for, okay, where's that digital book printing facility out there that, you know, they've hit their limits. But, you know, for me, I need access to that, to that workflow. And, you know, they can't, you know, they've hit a glass ceiling and can't get into my world. So, you know, where's that opportunity? And that, it was that effort that ultimately led to, um, to the exit of the company. Well, which I, and I want to I want to touch on in a second too is like so what I find interesting, Walker, is that like you know this whole EOS traction movement and the Rockefeller habits, you know, working on your business and in in the E Myth and all this stuff that's been going on for the last decade or so yep. is like this. What you just described is like all that the business owner should actually be dealing with is my in my truest opinion, right? Where like you totally should. Agree. Yeah, like you should be looking at your business as an asset. As long as you got cash flow to hire the people, then those strategic decisions and those things that you're just talking about is like all that you should be doing to be able to grow and to do the things that you need to do. And I'm curious as you were doing that, because you said it was a two and a half year search for that. 
yeah. and when you said and you kind of topped it off with the new, which led to the ultimate exit is mm. were you doing all of this in light of I'm trying to hit a specific EBITDA or a specific valuation and I've got a potential couple exit targets in mind like how are you like um like balancing that eventual situation to harvest the value with what you were doing I mean did you think about it I did but it, the time was very different. You know, I mean, the, the economic um, landscape today is thriving, right? Um, and it's one of these things where at that time, uh, that was not the situation, you know? And I wasn't looking at it in terms of, you know, I've got this target because I was in my 30s, you know? Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wanted to build this company. I knew that uh, I felt it was the best time since Gutenberg to actually make a significant difference in that industry. And I truly believe that every business out there has an opportunity and it tells you what to do, right? I mean, if you look at a business, the growth opportunity of that business is very clear. You know, buggy whips, you know, I mean, we always use, you know, like, oh yeah, it's going the way of the buggy whip. Well, all the buggy whip companies were actually car parts um, distributors. So they did just fine after the buggy whip dropped out, <laughs> except for probably the, manu- you know, the, the, the main manufacturers, right? Which I think then switched into wheels and such. But mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the point is, is if you look at, you know, I'll throw another name out there, Jim Collins, he wrote that book, um, how the mighty fall. Right. And the, mm-hmm. and the subtitle is like, and how the others, you know, thrive or, you know, the subtitle sells the book and, you know, we don't want to learn about failure. But anyway, the, the point is, is that we all believe that these startups are the ones that dominate new industries. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's real easy to look at examples that it's very clear, like Amazon, right or um, I guess Apple, right? I mean, you know, th- this kind of a thing. Well, but the empirical evidence suggests that although entrepreneurs and their startups help create and launch the new industries, probably those, you know, with VC backing, those one out of 10 that really make it, it's actually the existing companies that make the leap to the new trend that end up dominating that industry. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it makes a bunch of sense to me. And like, in, well, just with the sheer quantity of the main street businesses that are out there, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like half of our GDP are privately right. held family right. and partnership right. businesses. <laughs> right. So, so to pull it around and say, you know, I mean, your, your question was sort of like, what was my, you know, what was my North star in that, in that, at that time? And it really was, you know, this is my opportunity. This is my business. Um, you know, I had whatever 50 families that I was responsible for. And people that, you know, I mean, you know that, but it's like people that don't have that experience. They, they don't understand it. Like, it's like, it's, you know, that's why EO exists, right? Is, mm-hmm. is, you know, you've got a lot of people depending on you. This was my opportunity and my future. And this was the trend that needed to be conquered. This was the challenge that I had in front of me. So who did, so how did that whole exit process go? Did someone knock on the door or did you? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I looked at 27 companies over two and a half years, most of which were not for sale, Right. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I found, I think I can be transparent about this. I, I found Publishers Graphics in Chicago and um, we reached out to them. They were not for sale. Um, and it was like, oh my God, this is the perfect company. I mean, they had this, they had a, um, an IT infrastructure that, you know, just the workflow was everything I wanted. It was, um, I can't think of the word in my head, but it was, it was the most substantial in the industry at the time. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was only two companies in, in really the world that had mastered print on demand. Turned out there was three. And uh, so uh, Publishers Graphics had absolutely nailed 
all of the infrastructure I was trying to hit. And um, after talking with them for about four months, uh, the CEO up there said, listen, I, everything you want to do makes perfect sense. And I want to do it. I just want to change one thing. I want to buy you. <laughs> no problem. You know, I mean, here I am, you know, I'm like 35 years old or whatever in the, in the printing industry. And, and uh, that was fine. Now, listen, you're, you're, you know, I was like, look, this is my vision and I don't care who executes it. It doesn't have to be me. It doesn't, have, it can be you. I don't care. Right. As long as it happens. Right. So um, that was an exciting time. And I learned another lesson, Ryan, at that time, which was, you know, when you get to, if you wait until the end of your career to sell your business, you are going to be totally surprised what it's worth, right? In other words, you might have a number in your head, but there's a 100% chance that number is wrong, right? It's just, you know, where, on which side is it? And I will say, I started using a broker because I started to approach business owners uh, without a broker first and just said, hey, let me, you know, let's talk. I want to buy you. And 100% of them wanted 20 times EBITDA. And it was just like, okay, that, you know, that's not how this works. You know, and you've got, I've got everything to gain by educating you on how this works. So you're not going to listen to me. So I ended up, you know, utilizing a broker and using, using someone else to, to help. So did me. you not use a broker the first, uh, to sell to that guy? No, I did because I, because I eventually used, used a broker to help me with outreach. And it was basically, oh, it. he would call in and say, listen, I've been specifically asked to call you. By, by this buyer who has engaged me, they've covered my fees, you know. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's not one of these like, hey, you want to sell your business? Like, I can help you. Like, I got buyers. Like, this was like, I handpicked them and, and found them and mm -hmm. he would reach out. So what was the, what was some of the things, and, and I think it's, it kind of comes to that point where, I, where it's important for these listeners, because going out and buy all the reason, I really highly suggest that people should be going out and looking at ways to accelerate their growth and value by doing what you're talking about. It's, it's totally. such a no brainer. And then, totally. but you know what there, a lot of these people, if most of the listeners are baby boomers and then other people are just in light of what you're trying to do, I think it's kind mm. of pretty much both ends of the, the spectrum. Mm. What did you learn over that experience of selling that you realized like how the value is applied? You know, even though you had bought companies, Walker, was yep. there thing you learned that you were not aware of when you were the one selling? Let me think. I mean, you know, I, I think the big thing was, was that, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, the day I sold, I had no debt on the business. Right. And that was great. But, um, what I learned was that at my, at the time of my exit, which again, I'd built this, you know, great thing and not by myself, it wasn't a, you know, I mean, we had a team of great people and we, and we really executed very well. And what I learned was, you know, the, the value of my business you know, because it was in this mature market was going to be pretty much the same when I was 35 and when I was 65. Right. So for those that wait and just sort of hold on to their business and, and, and kind of stop growing and get comfortable, I would say it's at that moment that you should really sell because, you know, you need to, you need to continually be moving on. And, uh, that was that it was that insight that, that, you know, kind of, I eventually turned into, okay, I bought a business and then I was like, okay, well, how do I scale buying businesses? Right. And then I started using managers to buy more companies that I didn't in, in turn have to run. Does that make sense? It does. And, and it's, it's interesting. I've got this friend who just sold his company for a significant amount of money and he articulated the way that you, when you said, and you did a pretty good job too, of saying it's, it's a way to continuously move on because essentially you've got like a bond that's going to clip away at what 4% over and over and over, and over again that you're, that you're locked, your, your, your capital is locked into and tied up in and, and right. you're 
working in some of it. But what he said is he goes, I can get seven years worth of income today and then roll it into other companies that then I have other shareholders and other people boosting my capital for me. That's right. That's right. Like, Isn't yeah. that a great way to put it? That's right. That's right. That's exactly it. And so, yeah. And after I sold my first company, that's exactly what I did. I ran out and bought six more, right? Six more companies? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Which, what, what, what were the... What were the different, um, and what was the strategy behind the different uh, companies? And was it a big holding company that you'd wrap them all into? Or what you know, was- I mean, I mean, sort of the 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 brand that that I guess holds them all is Centra. Uh, it's just my, it's a, it's mm-hmm. my name that means kind of nothing to anyone else. But but um, uh, the strategy was again just looking at my skill set and and you know this and the opportunity that a company has, and then looking at you know I would I would. Uh, find and meet managers that I would want to employ and then use their skill set and match it to a growth opportunity. So today I own companies in e-commerce, manufacturing and distribution. Super cool. Yeah. I want to jump in here, but you know, I'm not sure how much time we have left, but something keeps, it's kind of circling around me and I'm not sure when it's going to come up. So I just want to throw it out there. Yeah, no, go for it. A lot of times people that are exiting a business, you know, they, they have this mindset of like, oh, the goal is to sell it when it's, when it's at its peak and it's worth its absolute maximum amount, right? And I think that two things happen. One, if you actually get to that peak, it's not worth quite as much, okay? And number two, a buyer is going to understand that it's at that peak and they're not going to pay as much for it. In other words, when you're selling a business and when you're buying a business, the big overlap is there's got to be a very clear growth opportunity. The best, let me say it like this, the best acquisition entrepreneurs will find and see the opportunity that the sellers don't necessarily see, okay? But the point is, is that, you know, if, if you completely maximize a run and there's no money left on the table for a buyer, you're not actually maximizing the sale of your company. Because when a buyer comes yeah. in, they want to be able to see, oh, there's more money on the table and that's going to push the, the value up, right? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, because if you know, you don't want to be the, well, actually the, here's a great uh, story and analogy. And I don't know how many people know about it, but like, so there was a private equity firm that bought Blockbuster and ran Ooh, them. Really? Into the okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. But, I want to bring you the story. Cause well, so they, they bought Blockbuster and ran them into the ground. Cause they literally just, it was straight line, man. Cause that was the top, right? So Blockbuster hit their top mm-hmm. and then they just like the private equity firm, which was just pure numbers. They said, okay, how many late fees are out there? How many rentals are out there? And then what's the, I mean, it was literally liquidation value <laughs> and, but they bought it, but it was just purely a numbers play, but that was it. That, that, that wasn't max value whatsoever. I mean, it was just, it was almost liquidation value in the marketplace. Yeah. And can I tell you, I mean, you know, we look at, we look at a company like Blockbuster or like Borders and we're like, oh boy, they really messed it up. Well, I mean, the reason Barnes and Noble, you know, pulled ahead and Borders went out of business was because Borders outsourced their online ordering to Amazon. So they gave up online or the online ordering of books mm-hmm. that, you know, which was the big future trend. If you look at Blockbuster and really drill down into the technology that crippled that entire industry, it was DVDs and the U.S. mail. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Whoever bought Blockbuster, I hope they're not listening. <laughs> but it's like, it's like they missed out on like, again, like to, to just to draw an analogy, you know, the biggest time since Gutenberg, like the greatest opportunity since like online home, or, or since home video, right. Was simply making that leap from retail stores to your mailbox. 
and they just fail to do it for whatever reason, you know? Well, and, and actually let's expand on that for whatever reason, because I think in this, I think it actually even, it, it, it proves your point of acquisition even more, Walker's that, so 70% of Blockbuster's revenue came from their late fees. So they literally physically couldn't do what Netflix was doing because Netflix said, I'm going to go in and charge 10 bucks a month. So like they would be cannibalizing their own profits and their own shareholders because the market was shifting. So they would have either, they should have gone out and bought people to get into that space. But like when you look at the P&L, like they can't do it because they're paralyzed by where, by where they get their profits. And, you know, my old industry got that, had that problem, which is where's the, you know, where's the problem Well, this in or this profit center. And so copiers manage IT software. When the reality is like what I would, what we had done at the, the last part is it's profit per customer who gives a shit what they buy. And <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, that's right. That's right. But, but you have all these corporate bureaucracies of people just like, you know, arguing internally because of their bonus structures. Well, let's talk about John Werlow again. You know, this is the automatic customer. I mean, this is, I mean, again, it's just something that they didn't see. And, and um, if you had the Blockbuster brand, right, and you could buy the Blockbuster brand, mm-hmm. then there's no other company that could have competed with Netflix once Netflix really got going. Yep. Blockbuster was the only one, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they mm-hmm. just missed the opportunity. They didn't, make the, they didn't make the leap to the new trend. So uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, Walker, you, you, they, if you think, you know, I think for the listeners who... Uh, are going, okay, I get all this and it all makes sense or to a certain degree, um, is what is it like, you know, when you're going in there, what is your kind of maybe two cents of when you're looking at a business and you're valuing it and like, you know, you can kind of tie it back into Warlow or any of these other people, but the value building, because it's up, you know, as a buyer, it's mm-hmm. just the risk. So a value driver is just also a risk factor. So like, what are the things that you look for and that you will increase your value that you will pay or decrease? I mean, is there some big glaring things that you kind of wanted to say, Hey, keep thinking about these things if you're marching towards an exit? I'm not, I mean, I'm not like a value buyer or anything like that, but paying big multiples just scares me period. Right. And a lot of high growth companies, you know, they, they get a lot of attention. They're really sexy. They drive, they push big multiples. Those scare me to death. It's just not my thing. At the same time, you know, a drastic turnaround is not my flavor either. I think that I really look at the market. And as an advisor for online businesses, I, 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 what I love about it so much is that you learn that the market, it, the customer feedback loop in the market on online businesses is very fast, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we, sell, we sell like, you know, 90% of our listings in 90 days. I mean, it just is so fast. Because they're, they're easy to transfer, they're easy to validate, you know, they're easy to operate compared to, you know, 50 employee manufacturing company or whatever. And what I learned from that is that the, the, the market is just brutally honest. And I think a lot of times um, you'll find a buyer who, or I'm sorry, a seller, and I'm, I'm switching gears now to mm-hmm. a buyer, and I'll be talking to a seller and it's, it's or, or, their, or their broker, and I start to figure out like, okay, you know, a couple of things. One, they are trying to present themselves as if they're in an adolescent market and like push this, this multiple, which actually makes no sense at all, right? And they might be able to push that kind of a multiple to a strategic buyer, but understanding that you're not a strategic buyer is really important. (laughs) And just because, you know, they're kind of pricing it, you know, one way doesn't mean that you have to believe in it. I'm not saying, you know, go out and get a deal all the time. I'm just saying, be the buyer that you are. Okay. Don't, don't pretend like you're a different buyer because you, that's, you can really burn yourself with that. That's good feedback. Yeah. I had, I had one other thing and I, Brian, I can't, I can't remember what it was. Well, I think it, what's it, it's good feedback Walker, because I think 
whether you're buying or selling, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you should technically be, if you, and maybe it's honestly just as simple as this, Walker's like, this is the game that entrepreneurs should be playing, right? It shouldn't be arguing about your KPIs at your management team. Like this is the, this is what entrepreneurship is. And whether you're buying or selling, it's the same stuff, right? And what happens find that people just don't ever think about it or listen or do it. And then they just get blindsided because they don't know what the market's talking about. And mm -hmm. so they're just totally out of whack with what they, with, with, with what they're thinking. And one more thing, right? I mean, the other thing that I look for, and this is, this is, um, you know, maybe I should announce it on a podcast, but I always try to look for, you know, the fundamentals of the business. And I look, you know, I look for really truly like kind of old economy style fundamentals. And then I want to be the person to kind of bring the new economy to it, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, if I can find that company that it hasn't really been on the, it hasn't really taken advantage of the internet yet. And, you know, consider the $10 trillion in business value that needs to change hands and all the boomers that own these companies, you know, they, a lot of them, a lot of them, I'm not, you know, I'm not over, you know, whatever, but a lot of it is them, what it is. It is what they it don't is. have any debt, right? They haven't, you know, really hustled for a decade because they're comfortable. You know, maybe right. they're making whatever their number is, $200,000 a year, a million dollars a year, whatever it is. And they're just kind of cruising along, putting their kids through college and, and living the good life. And, you know, when it comes time to sell, there's going to be a huge opportunity for the person that has that skill set that can come in and just, you know, upgrade the business. And that's kind of what I look for. That's, that's, that's my, my sort of recipe. No, and I think it, it actually, it speaks to the kind of the reality of what it is. We're like, and, and I almost, I honestly, that's the interesting dynamics that my dad and I had Walker, because, you know, like, okay, are we going to dump another $2 million into this company for managed IT service? And he's looking at me going, you're crazy. Right. You're crazy. I, want, I, want, I want my money. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, but come on, this is going to be cool. And, and so like, you know, I, I think a lot, they, 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 they do lose the the fire and the hustle and the return on the capital and investments that they're going to get. Like, I mean, are they going to see that for the timeline that they want? And it, that, that kind of goes into your kind of the, I think that's an interesting overlay. And I don't, I don't know if that's something that you've kind of articulated, but like you have the, the growth, you know, where they're at in the industry and the growth, but then you throw on the, the timeline of the, of the entrepreneur and it can tell a lot too of why those things haven't been upgraded and done. Cause I mean, it just makes too much sense. Right. I, I think the most overrated question is why are they selling? You know, everyone's always like, oh, they see something around the corner. There's a snake in the bushes or whatever. They're selling because they built something of value and it's time to exit. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. So as we're wrapping up here, Walker, you know, as, with all the different things that we've talked about, your whole book, that which everybody will have links in the show notes. Everybody's got to go out and read it. You know, if there's something from the book or from the podcast or something we didn't talk about, and you, you know, you want to leave the listeners with it, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I would say, um, go to buythenbuild.com and check it out. I think, um, you know, I've, I've got the book out there. I put a little, um, course together and my goal is uh, my long-term goal is that, uh, you know, if I can, if I can generate enough interest, uh, with buy then build, I want to build out a, a complete, uh, community and, and eventually marketplace. So oh, if you get a hold of me or, or learn anything about, um, anything that we're trying to get done, it's at buythenbuild.com. That's awesome. That's awesome. Walker, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Thanks, Ryan. I enjoyed it. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Walker. I think it's something that you should really take to heart. Whether you are planning on selling your company first and not doing any acquisitions, it's a really good lesson to be learned about how someone's going to perceive value in your business. 
But I really do think that the big takeaway is I challenge you to go onto a brokerage website, whether it's a Sunbelt in your local marketplace or any brokerage site, start looking at financials and start looking at a business from the eyes of a buyer because not only are you going to learn a lot about your business and what you should be doing inside your business to pitch it and get it ready for an eventual exit, whether that's third party or internal, but it's also going to help you and strategically get you thinking about how you could bolt on additional value using your cash flow, potentially some financing to accelerate your growth, your cash flow and your valuation because someone else has got to their peak and they're ready to teach it off to you where then you can take that the customers cross sell and just do a bunch of different things with their business because of your platform that you've built go on to amazon go on to walker's website check it out buy his book learn a lot about it reach out to him or reach out to gexp if you want to know more so if you enjoyed the episode go on to itunes otherwise i will see you next week